everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Rule One Podcast, and I'm so glad I did that right. You did so good. (laughs) Rule One Podcast, that's where we try to figure out how to invest like the best investors in the world. And we have a special guest with us today at this podcast. Oh, and by the way, we're podcasting and we're going live across Facebook right now. So, hey, everybody at Facebook. (laughs) And we're live in the Bookworm Bookstore in Omaha, Nebraska. And if you have not been to Omaha, Nebraska, you should come, if only to come to the Bookworm Bookstore. Oh, I agree. This is Which is an awesome place. Super great people. Everything you want is right here including us, for the next two hours. <laughs> what? <laughs> so we have a special guest today. Do you want to go ahead and introduce? Yeah, I really do. Laura is an incredible author. She is a friend of Warren Buffett. She has been instrumental in creating a kind of a genre all of her own, which is solving one of my biggest hurdles ever in the history of investing, and that is is the information she put in her book, Investing Between the Lines. So would you guys all help me welcome here, Laura Rittenhouse. Everybody here. (laughs) Laura, welcome. Omaha, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Welcome, Laura. The problem that you have aimed your book at, and a lot of your life at, coming out of Wall Street, coming out of the whole institutional investing world, And then looking at one of the biggest problems we have, and that is figuring out if managers are telling us the truth. Pretty big deal. And your book is stunning about this. And I've been talking it up, by the way, on this podcast, Laura, for like weeks now, ever since I read it and wished that I had read it earlier. So we're going to talk much more at some point about the book itself, about the work you do. But today... We're here at the Berkshire meeting together. We're here at the Bookworm with everybody who's just been through the Berkshire meeting. That's what we want to talk about today. Okay. What a great (laughs) topic, right? Is this an experience like you've never had before in your life? (laughs) Yes. Do you want to have it again? (laughs) Yes. And why? Why? It's like, I don't know. There's another book that just came out. I don't know if any of you saw it or you bought it. It's really good. It's called The Warren Buffett Shareholder. And it's a collection. Larry Cunningham, who was, was famous for writing the first uh, essays of Warren Buffett, I know I got an email from him just two months ago. He said, "We're going to put this book out. Letters of uh, the, the the about the meeting about the meeting." It's a collection um, of essays, right? And it's so it's stories, essays from all kinds of people who, uh, from all kinds of walks of life, who have come to the meetings, you know, for the last twenty, thirty, whatever, or more recently. And uh, what's great about the book I released today, because it was done so quickly, the writing is really spontaneous and it's really personal. And uh, it gives you such a, a broad view, all the facets of you know what people experience and why they come here and what they bring to this. But getting back to- Well, you wrote an essay for that book. And, oh, by what, the way. What was yours? <laughs> there we go. By the way. So what was the thought that came to your mind as soon as he said to you, Laura, would you please write an essay about that's the absolute encapsulation of your experience at the Berkshire meeting. What did you come up with? This is funny. You know, I, this is this is my. It was on Facebook. Okay, um, I have. A, I am known on the internet as the Queen of Candor. That was um, my, the name given in a blog by Inc. Magazine. So I will tell you that when I, you know, we didn't get, I didn't get much notice. I had like two and a half weeks to pull this together. So wow, the first thing crazy. I wanted to do was to write about Susie Buffett, Susan T. Buffett. 
who, who was first his wife. wife. Who, if you've seen the Charlie Rose interview, if you haven't, Google it. It's wonderful. Charlie Rose interviews Susan T. Buffett. And, uh, and in that interview, you know, Su- she's so charming. And you've, you understand when, Char- when Warren says, I could have never done this without Susie. Never done this about Susie. And of course, there's a whole history there, which I won't get into. But so I wrote this chapter and it featured this and I wrote other things. And I sent it until Larry said, no. <laughs> I said, okay, go back to the drawing board. And then I realized that um, for me, 20 years, I've come to Omaha every year for the past 20 years. Now, partly because I've written three books with Warren's support. The first book being Do Business with People You Can Trust. I don't know if anybody have read, read that. I still have uh, investors from Germany coming to say that's their favorite book. It's, it's out of print now, but write me, I can get you one. Um, and uh, the, um, the, the second book was Buffett's Bites. I write each of these books after disaster catastrophes. So the first book was written after the dot-com crash and Enron. Second book was written right after the economic collapse in 2009. Mm. Um, and so the most recent book, Investing Between the Lines, is the book that actually Danielle sent me a fan letter, which was great. I li- you know, we, we all love getting fan letters, right? And um, what Phil said is absolutely correct, that the hardest thing in investing, you can go to all kinds of classes and learn about how to analyze the numbers, right? Now, what I say on a, a video I did for Chartered Financial Analysts, which selected my work as part of their Future of Finance initiative, I said, you know, the problem that I think people have that are just numerically, quantitatively oriented is they, they um, have this idea that because numbers are precise, they are accurate, right? A number two is a number two. The word two could be T-W-O, T-W-O-O, T-W-O, T-W-O, a two-two, T-U-T-U. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, obviously people are going to the numbers because it gives you real information. But I think what either Charlie or Warren said something to the effect that when you're running numbers through a formula that's wrong, you're getting a precisely wrong answer. Exactly. And and that's, of course, what happens so much when we do quantitative analysis is we end up with, uh, you know, anybody here who's done any work trying to figure out the value of a business, even using some of the tools we have. You, you tweak the P.E. ratio a little bit and you got a whole different valuation going on, right? I mean, just a little bit of a change here and a little change in the growth rate and bam, you've got something that all of a sudden looks on sale. So you're 100% right. And in fact, more and more as we get deeper into all this, it, it feels like it's the subjective view of the long-term value of the business that's important. Almost not, not even the numerical view. It's the, it's the sense that the business will be worth a lot more in the future. It's going to be more productive in the future. And a huge piece of that is who's driving the car, right? What's that management team doing with this thing that looks like it's going to be more valuable down the road? And that's where you got deep into it. Well, and that's exactly why when I wrote to Warren in 1997 to tell him what I was doing and that I had read his shareholder letter and it gave me all of these insights, he wrote me back to say, you're doing the work of the angels. That's amazing. And uh, why don't you come to the next shareholder meeting, which is (laughs) how this all started. Wait, that was the first time you came? That was, you had written him, he wrote you, and that was when you first came. You hadn't been here before that. No. Wow. No, No. 
Yeah. And he came that, as kind of a celebrity. At that point, imagine, at that point, the meeting, 1998, which was the Axarban uh, Coliseum, at that meeting, there were about 7,000 people. Everybody lined up single file in front of one door. The door opened, and everybody quietly marched in one at a time. It's just like you know? yesterday. And I've decided, I came up yesterday, I said, you know, what we really should call this is... <laughs> The, the the scramble to get in the doors, the running of the bulls in <laughs> Omaha. Everybody's <laughs> laughing because they all just went through this, but I didn't know this until, so this is my first meeting ever, and I didn't know that everybody sort of, they call it a line, and it looks like a line, but the line is about 15 people wide, especially right at the doors where it's about 40 people wide, and when they open the doors, everybody just crams in as much as they possibly can. And then once you get in, I posted this on Instagram yesterday, people run for the seats. I mean, it's really the yeah. running of the bulls. Yeah, then it becomes, what's that show uh, where people travel around the world, um, you know, the race? Amazing oh, the amazing yeah, race. Yeah. So you go from running out of the bulls to amazing race. <laughs> well, let me, let me tell you that in the podcast, we have hammered away at something Charlie said a few years ago to BBC, that there's really these four things you have to be thinking about. You want to be sure you're capable of understanding the business. You want to be sure it has a durable competitive advantage um, that will last, right? Something very durable. And you'd like to have management that has talent and integrity. You, you see the shift, right? It's like you must have and then you must have, and then, oh, would it be nice to have? Because getting management that has talent and integrity, that's a pretty good trick. Well, it's, I have to tell you, and uh, I don't know how many of you have read my book, but I have really good news for you. It's not that hard to figure this out. Uh, and what you're saying, we haven't used the word yet, it's about the culture. It's all about the culture. And who creates the culture? The leadership. It's what the leadership stands for. and. Uh, and what you learn in reading the shareholder letters is based on a fundamental pr principle that we humans don't like to accept, which is our words hmm. create our future. Our words create the future. Now, what does that mean? That means I'm responsible for <laughs> you know, my future? Oh my gosh. You know, so, but <laughs> I have come to really appreciate that and I, I mean, the power of language, this, remember, this is, this is our ability, we humans, again, uh, unlike all the creatures in the world, we have the gift of symbolic language, meaning that dogs, we, they, they can talk, right? They have, they have language. Animals can talk to one another, maybe to us, but animals can't make Botox. They can't use language to create ice cream or hydrogen bombs. This is what we humans can do. This is how powerful Botox, our words are. ice cream, and hydrogen bombs seem to all go together pretty well. This is the vast, <laughs> the vastness <laughs> of human creativity. Laura, do you think that's why so many people now come to see Buffett and Munger speak at Berkshire? Because they speak about so much more than investing, and they do so so oh. eloquently. Well, people, the wisdom, the word wisdom came up very quickly, and uh, and so. Um, do you want me? I think they're not hearing us so well in the back, so okay. we need to speak, speak up. up. Okay, is this better? Thank you. Okay, wisdom. Uh, that is, uh, boy, is that sh in shorts? That's a that's a shortage, right? We have wisdom shortage right now. I feel in this in our in our country. But um, let me get back to the question of culture because I know that's what Warren really appreciated and how hard it is to determine what what culture is. Um, 
what I did is, oh, I'll tell you how I started doing this work. So I had been on Wall Street. I left and um, I decided to create an investor, uh, strategic investor communications business because a lot of the clients, a lot of the CEOs I worked with wanted to continue working with me. And I said, you know, I would sell you these expensive deals, you know, to buy another company or do this fancy financing. But you've got to know if you're communicating your value to your investors in a way so you're getting the full value. And I, I created a lot of uh, instruments so we could measure that. But now, this was a time, imagine, this was a time when it, the cult of the CEO was just uh, occur, uh, starting. So before that, you know, a CEO, they didn't make multiples, multiples, multiples of, you know, what, whatever the employees were making. But um, in this dot-com era, and post-dot-com, um, it was CEOs, they were, the, the people would say, the valuation of your stock is determined, 60% of the valuation of your stock is determined by the reputation of the CEO. And if that indeed was correct, which to a large extent that was true, uh, then you had to be sure that the CEO was putting out a story, putting out um, uh, an impression of them as a leader that would convince investors that they deserved the valuations they were getting. So, wait a second. So, yes. how did how did you start looking at what the CEOs were saying as a reference point for whether they have integrity or not? Or, or wisdom, or whether there's somebody we want to put money with long term. How did, where, how did that come in right there? Well, what is the one uh, communication that an all investor, most investors read, that Warren Buffett read all the time? Right. He would say early on, "I invested in Coca-Cola just from reading the shareholder letter." Right. So I started reading the shareholder letters of my clients and looking to see what kind of impression they were making through this communication. Oh, and these were your clients that you were hired to form, to essentially like form their them. public view. Yeah, look, uh, linking valuation with communication. So you started out actually on the writing side of the whole thing, the company side. <laughs> writing and advising, writing and advising, because what I started to do, once I uh, began to read the letters of my clients, I started reading the letters of their competitors. Mm-hmm. And so, and that got really interesting because then I could say, wow, you're talking about this as your strategy, but they're talking about that. And, you know, your strategy is raising these questions, which actually are being answered by this CEO. So what, what's something that you, is there any one thing you have to see in a CEO letter to know that you're really taught listening to somebody or reading somebody who's got it together? Is there <laughs> one thing or is there no one well, thing? All right. Uh, the one thing, I'm telling you, this is the key determinant. You've got to find low BS. Ah. Very low levels of BS. So give us a high level of BS. Well, I mean, when I say low levels, I mean measure. I actually measure I know. this. I I'm, measure I'm, this. Okay. I'm telling you, what's a high pile of bull crap look like? Well, one of my favorite, not favorite, <laughs> one of the cliches, which, you know, I always gag when I see this, you know, employees are greatest asset. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, 
I that's mean, a high if, level if of BS. If it's asset, then are you depreciating your employees? Yeah, I guess you are, you know? You're necessarily not appreciating them if you're using a dumb old cliche like that to uh, to honor them. So those, oh, and, and our brightest days are ahead. Oh, yeah. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Like, is anybody awake? Is anybody awake in that company to say? So it's vague. Vague. There's no and, candor. Well, and, and, and authenticity. What, I'm, what we're looking for is leaders who lead authentically. And what does that mean? Okay, what does Jeff Bezos do? He's always, it's so interesting. Okay, here's a good story. Jeff Bezos, who had always, so I've developed codes and numeric, numerics so I can quantify the amount of truths and BS. So I can get actually a measure of what I call candor or I, I, I have a, a sanitized word for BS what I use with my clients, right? <laughs> FOG, FOG, it's an acronym for Fact Deficient Obfuscating Generalities. Does Fact that, Deficient yes. Obfuscation and Generalities, yeah. I like it. So FOG, FOG, beautiful. So, so, um, beautiful. so when, when you see, so, so, so you wanna have low levels of FOG, I mean, high, yeah, low levels of fog to to feel that you can trust. So, is a it, do you turn it on your do you turn it on its head then and say that something that is, you know, what what are we looking at? Fog, right? Fact. So full of facts is not fact efficient. Right. Not obfuscating anything, laying it out there, straight, straight out, on. and then. Generalities, generalities, details. Give me details. Give me details. Give me stories. Also, I was telling you about Jeff Bezos. His letters were amazing. You've all read his letters, right? Who has not read his letters? Oh my God! Go home and read them. Two funny stories since we have time, right? Sure. Okay. So he uh, he always he he always appends his 1997 letter because it was the first letter he ever wrote, and he said, "This is the letter that started the company, and we're still following this." And, that letter um, is incredible, that first letter. And that letter ends with, it's still day one at Amazon, right? Two years ago, he started his letter. He said, you know, I was at a meeting and somebody asked me, Jeff, what's day two like? <laughs> <laughs> we always talk about Heck day one. Heck of a one. day one, man. What, day one? what yeah. about day two? Yeah. And Jeff said, right. day two, death. Death. <laughs> oh, death. man. Stay oh day one. <laughs> You know, so day one is like, stay alive. You know, John Travolta, staying alive. Be alive. Bring your whole self to work. And I don't know if you, I've spent, I've spent for some reason, I get, I get to fly planes and I, I sit next to a lot of Amazon people or people just hired. They're great people to talk to. And what's the one thing that Amazon does that I don't know any other company does? Do you know the one thing they do that I'm sure accounts for it and it's related to communication? No. They do not allow PowerPoints in their meetings. Oh. No PowerPoints. PowerPoints. <laughs> forbidden. So what do they do instead? They require people, get back to this is how important culture and communication is. They require people coming to a meeting to write whatever, a six-page paragraph, summarizing, you know, what the issue is, what, what uh, you know, what, what the alternatives are, and what your recommended action is. So... People come with their memos, they sit down, they read it, and then they discuss it. So Bezos has a great letter. Buffett obviously has a great letter. Um, John Mackey, can I put him in there? Because I've sure. liked John's letters. Okay. 
Um, wh- who else? Who, in other words, if we were to say, here's a group of people who you should read to see what it looks like to do it right. Uh, well, I'll answer the question, but then I want to add something to that because right. this is one of the most important things that you can learn, and I'm learning this right now through this uh, most recent uh, group of shareholder letters, is, um, is w- you want to know when the culture is starting to turn. Uh-huh. Uh, so because I do these, anal- the, you know, I have got numeric uh, rankings, uh, and I can see, so in the case... I'm going to get back to answering No, the first I'm question. thinking, I'm thinking, I'm looking okay. at here because I'm thinking, man, we do this thing called story, which is all about trying to understand the business in a coherent sort of form and looking to see if the story's changing, if the culture is changing. Oh, man, that would be nirvana. Okay, n- here's nirvana. Us. Okay. <laughs> so, God, what was the year? I think it was about maybe 2005, 2006. Uh, Amazon, which had always ranked in the top quartile of our survey, suddenly they dropped out of that ranking. I said, oh my God, what's going on at the company? And so then I go to the financials, right? And, um, and they have three buckets of expenses that they consistently report. So I'm, let's see if I can remember those. Fulfillment, marketing, and R&D, Right, and so you look back over the three or four years, and the allocations to each of those buckets was pretty similar, except for the year that 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 ranking went down. And what happened? R and D spending tri- tripled, tripled, and the other ex- you know the other expenses declined. I said, "Oh my God, they're inventing something. They're playing. They're going to do in a high risk, uh, you know, technology big deal thing." I wonder if they're going to succeed, right? Guess what it was? AWS. Kindle. Kindle. It was the Kindle. Kindle, interesting. Now, they never write about it. He never writes about AWS in his letter. What's AWS? Oh, that's where they make 90% of their profits comes from. That's a a kind of fog thing that I would worry a little bit about. Yeah, AWS is Amazon Web Services, which started in D.C. I actually had the pleasure of spending time with the woman who was uh, very instrumental in, in growing that business. But that business accounts for 90% And they, they were referring to that profits. yesterday. Was it yeah. Munger that was talking? Like that, that somehow in 1996, they were looking at, at Jeff and at Amazon, and like Warren said, right, this guy made a miracle. And you'd have to have judged that, oh, well, I'm going to invest in the future miracle here because he did not just this book selling business, which then evolved into a retail online monster, but also he did AWS, which is like, who's, who's going to ever figure that's going to happen, right? And he basically handed IBM their rear end, right? I mean, he's near, he just basically put a stop to IBM and they're running to catch up to this day. So, I mean, the, the first sign of that was when the CIA took AWS instead of Big Blue, right? And um, man, that was a huge wake up call for IBM and everybody else who was looking at Amazon that they have just gone into some other world. So, yeah, I mean, so well, and but- it was very cool yesterday just to get back to the meeting that we were all at. It was very cool to hear him talk about how they missed that one. They missed Amazon. They talked about how they missed Apple originally, like Google, kind of- Google, Miss exactly. Google. What did you think, Laura? Was that a good example of the candor that you talk about, that you look for, the like positive version of this rather than the anti version of what you're not looking for? 
Uh, so how did they miss it? Well, this is what, uh, this is not, actually... Not so much how did they miss it, but, but that they're reporting that they missed it. Yeah, that they talk about their mistakes with such oh, yes, yes. alacrity. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they're, they're, and also that's alacrity and humility, right? You know, here's Charlie Munger saying, well, we're really stupid. We do a lot of stupid things here. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Right? <laughs> but you're still wise. <laughs> and you know, let's face it, it's how we learn, right? Our failures... If we don't learn, then we're still stupid. But if we can learn, we get and wise. I, and I honestly wonder, I mean, this is a little bit sacrilegious, but I always wonder, would they be so humble and forthcoming if they weren't so great already? In other words, you're hitting 340, you're leading the American League in batting, and you're going to talk about the times you struck out. Well, but that's a great question. Do you do that here? when you're hitting 200? Because you've been here for 20 years. Have you seen any difference in those 20 years of oh, how well, that's what, they've yeah. spoken about these kinds of mistakes? Well, well I, I'll mention, just in relation to this example, um, I tell you on a stack of Bibles that all the years that I've been coming here, I have heard them say, and I was influenced by this, don't invest in what you don't understand. Don't invest in what you don't understand. That's yeah. why we don't invest in technology. And... Um, and what I heard Warren say yesterday, and maybe I misheard it, so you can tell me, what I thought he said was, you know, sometimes you have to invest in what you don't understand, <laughs> which is, a, you know, an evolution, an evolution. And uh, I did a pop. What? Yeah. Wait, wait. I didn't yeah. quite hear I like didn't that. quite hear that either. Anybody else hear that? Did I dream <laughs> it? Did I dream it? I don't think. <laughs> you don't have to know how to take an iPhone apart. Which is different than understanding the business, because I think a point he was making, tell me if I'm wrong, was that Apple is about something much larger than the iPhone. It's about, an, what he said, the ecosystem, right? So you have this ecosystem, which is an incredible moat, which they can just shove things like iPhones into, because they've got the whole, they own my desktop. He so also I don't said think that, he was saying you don't understand. He also said that Todd and Ted have yeah. helped him to understand these newer companies. This is called selective hearings. <laughs> sacrilegious. But that's why I, sacrilegious. Look, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I'm going to bet you on this one. I'm going to bet you on this one. That's okay. I don't, I'll bet I, you dinner. I, I'm don't, I I'll bet know you dinner what, in New York. All right. Good. <laughs> all right. You're probably right. But here's what's so interesting. So when he made that Apple investment, and he could have done... Google, he could have done Facebook, all those. He chose Apple, and, and I thought that made a lot of sense because Apple is a, kind of a, it's a retail business. You can go to the store. You can have a store experience. Right. you got real products. It's like Google, was, Facebook, look what's happened to them. I did a blog about that on Forbes recently, and let me tell you, it got a lot of pickup. Uh, that, that's a serious model, but I'm going to tell you something. It's kind of crazy. Uh, I was just at a brunch, and I talked to this woman who I met last year who is one of the smartest people I have ever met. I cannot tell you what she talked about because I couldn't understand half of it. Um, but I could tell it was really smart. And what she's saying now, now, why is that? Is that a tautology? All right, you're going to tell? I'll tell you why. So What did um, she say she said, that you didn't understand? I feel like that all the time. <laughs> What I mean, right? Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> you know, you know, because you don't have the context. <laughs> you don't have all the context, but you know, you know that there's there's something that's really. So what I learned today, which I didn't know about, that there is a movement going. Maybe you all know about this. There's something going on about net neutrality, 
and that this could really change the economics of all the Googles and all of the search uh, companies. So that's the kind of thing that, you know, that, you know, and I think Charlie referenced that he too. Did. You know, that, Absolutely that the environment right. can change around you. You may, you know, the business can stay the same, but you know, that's why Warren loves Coke, right? The environment is still there. You're right. gonna drink that Coca-Cola. 20 so. years ago, did they speak differently with more or less candor than they do now? Have you seen a change? Oh, I think, I think so. And remember, it's not just because it's, the, there's the, this is being streamed now, right? And I think last year was the first year that it was streamed. And so when you're streaming, you're speaking to the whole world. And there's got to be a kind of self-censoring that goes on. Because before, if you've got a closed space and... Um, and, you know, journalists that have been sworn to secrecy or something. I and 7,000 fans <laughs> or whatever, yeah. right? You can that, say what's on your yeah, mind. Yeah, you can say. But, but there were a lot, it was a lot more personable. Like, I don't know, this may sound trivial, but getting back to culture, this said everything to me. And that first meeting that I went to, somebody got up, one of the investors got up and said, Warren, why did you drive yourself to the meeting? Don't you make in an old Cadillac? Don't you make enough money to drive a nice new car? I mean, will you, don't you owe it to the shareholders to be driving a newer, safer car? Interesting. What like, what say? kind of question is that? And uh, he, said, he said, you know what? Yeah, I could buy another car, but that would mean I'd have to learn how to drive it. I'd have to read the owner's manual. You know, this car works perfectly well. I have better things to do with my time than do. And this is why I say what really makes Warren unique in the history of the world, thank you, Karl Marx, is that he is a capitalist and not a materialist. Hmm. You know, capitalism is bent on this, you know, consumption, you know, conspicuous consumption. Look how important I am. I have my three private planes and my, you know, and, and for years, uh, what, what they, they had a small private plane, which, which Charlie called the indefensible, right? <laughs> and so, and then, so then he went and bought net jets. So now he can justify, I have a business. So when I fly my feet, you know, my expense is feeding the business. I'm supporting so my good. own business. Right. So business, really it's yeah. all symbiotic. So you saw a difference from the last even two years since they started streaming it on Yahoo Finance so that people who weren't there could still watch the meeting. I, th yeah, I think so. But also, also, you know, I don't know, you, you were there yesterday. Like any good conversation, uh, the meeting is, the quality of the meeting is determined by the quality of the questions, right? And what did you think about these questions? Well, see, I, didn't, I wasn't there a lot. So <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing? But, well, I was having what? my photograph taken. Oh, you were being famous. Oh, you're such a celeb. You were being no, famous. No, no, no. We were, we, were, we were doing this book. The, 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 I'm plugging this book, The Warren Buffett Shareholder, which uh, is cool. great, and also this book, too. <laughs> um, let me but, think if, we, if, if it's time we can open up to some questions here. Yeah, how about that, Laura? Should you okay we with that? Well, questions? is everybody okay about the culture thing? Because I think that is, that is so important, and I just really want you to know that... Um, you know, what I've done in this book, and that's what Danielle and uh, this, this gentleman here, Bill. Phil, Bill. is actually going to start teaching this. <laughs> Absolutely. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> this, this, be, this becomes our, one of our, our key books in the, in the course. Um, and we don't have very many key books. But we've got 
some that are really important that solve a problem. And we just haven't been able to solve that problem of management, right? We got the four M's, meaning management, margin, and safety. We get the most questions about it. It's the least numerically oriented of everything we do. Which is what makes me like it. Right. And it's about this integrity and talent, and it's it's difficult. And so for years, Laura, we have been saying, go read the shareholder letter. And if they're not telling you what's going wrong, they're lying. Is that a little too harsh, do you think? <laughs> because you read most of these letters, nothing's going wrong all year long. They okay. had had no problems whatsoever, which okay. doesn't sound like candor to me. It's absolutely right, but there's another phenomenon that I just want to, I think this is important in terms of background to know what's useful about this approach. Um, so in 2009, my IP lawyer called me and he said, Laura, did you read AIG's letter? I don't get it. I said, what do you mean you don't get it? You're so smart. Of course you get it. No, I don't get it. So I said, okay, I'll read it. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I just ruined the story. You can start over. No, it's no, no. Okay. It was Goldman Sachs's letter, okay? Goldman Sachs's letter. So I read the letter, and it starts off, you know, great sentence. You look for things like grammatical uh, deconstructing, um, jargony words, a run-on sentences. Run-on sentence, you know they're lying. You know, run-on like, sentence, that's a, run a lie. Sentence, like, well, Mom, I really tried to get home, but, you know, the, the, the teacher made and me then, stand and then, after. And then. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so, so very fine, very fine, very fine. Suddenly next paragraph, oh my God, it was like the bus ran off the road. There was a sentence that made no sense. And there was, you know, those things, the telltale jargon, awkwardness, uh, the one sentence did not follow the next sentence. I said, wow, what are they talking about? Oh, they're talking about how they explain why the fact AIG was, um, Goldman Sachs's largest counterparty in the collapse of the financial, all the derivatives, and how that had nothing to do with the bailout, right? Mm. And so so I thought, wow, this is a smoking gun right here. If you can't explain that clearly and directly and straightforwardly, then then this this looks troublesome. And so I called uh, my lawyer, I said, Steve, of course you couldn't understand it. You weren't supposed to understand it. It was crazy. It was gobbledygook. I said, how could you not see that? And he said to me, I didn't think I was smart enough. And you know what? We all fall. That's why BS is so toxic, because it shuts down our critical faculties. So it's just just a ah, that's lesson. a really that's exactly good why we wrote our book Invested because so many people like me just assumed that we didn't understand the financial world because we weren't smart enough, we didn't have the basic tools and first of all that's completely BS and secondly we just had to lay them out so that it was clear for people in a way that was also easy to understand and kind of fun and that's that's that fog you're talking about it's not just in those letters it's industry-wide i mean they're protecting a 100 billion dollar revenue stream and if a little fog is required to keep people ignorant then by god let's have some fog right (laughs) and so we're trying to we're trying to put a little light on the whole thing and get the fog away and it really helps to have great great books like investing between the lines to to go and dig in on and you have done something nobody else did 
which is really, really good. So I'd love to see if you guys have any questions for Laura. Or, Let's take some questions. And, and think if there's anything about the, the, uh, day, the day yesterday at Berkshire that um, you want to talk about as well. If there was something there you heard, something you want to chat about. We'd yeah, love we'd to love hear. to hear what you guys thought about the Berkshire meeting yesterday. So why don't you come up here? And then speak into this. Hi, it's Mark from New Orleans. Laura, you were talking about when you know when a company's turned, but you didn't really ah, finish that. Would you oh, keep going? Yes, yes, okay. So what does this mean to have a company turn? Well, um, it's so important uh, when one, you know, CEO succession, CEO succession. This is what uh, Berkshire's dealing with right now, right? Um, uh, it is... Uh, the letters I'm reading right now that came out last year, so you, there's a large number of CEOs in the companies that are in our survey that have, no, that have, um, have changed CEOs. And I'm, one of them, for example, is Honeywell, which is, is, is a great company. Uh, I, what what uh, Dave Cote has done over the years, he's, he not only writes his own letter, he makes up words. He, he creates his own words to describe things. And, uh, and when, so, so uh, he's got, a, there's a new CEO coming on. And I invite you, this is a letter that came out last year. Uh, it's a wonderful example of how to do CEO succession well. So he writes, you know, this is what I've done. He takes a victory lap and so on. But I'm now turning the ring, reins over to the new CEO. And then he comes in and, you know, he does his own thing and uh, lays out uh, a plan, you know, a plan for the company, a plan for the succession. Um, so that's great. Now, Mark, there are, you know, other other situations like, Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo had their problems and they brought in a new CEO. I really didn't see much change in the letter. So um, so you look for some change to see the personality, the efforts, the plan of the new CEO? And uh, the, what the new, yeah, is the CEO going to continue with the, the culture? The culture uh, or is the CEO going to improve the culture? Or um, in, in Starbucks case, uh, Howard Schultz uh, planned, you know, gave, turned the reins over to the new CEO, but then he went on for a whole page about all how involved he was going to continue to be in the operations of the business. So I wasn't quite sure about how that was a succession. So, so that's, you know, you look for the culture change, you look for the quality, the personalities, the personalities come through and trust your instincts. I think your letter or your book has had an impact enough to where a number of CEOs are no longer writing a letter. Do you <laughs> notice that? Have you seen that as well? I'm, I'm thinking particularly there's a Canadian company that we look at a lot um, called Linamar. And I'd love to hear from Linamar if they get this out to them because they're, the CEO of Linamar is uh, a fabulous woman uh, who took the company even greater than her father who founded it. Both of our are in the Canadian Hall of Fame for entrepreneurs. It's, it's one of Canada's big success companies in auto part manufacturing. And they did not write a letter in 2009. The 2008 year was a train wreck for automobiles, right? This is Chrysler's going down, GM's going down. They're, they just slammed the door on all the revenue for, for Linapar in a huge way. And all of a sudden you have no communication from the CEO. 
Wait, what? They do something related to autos? What do they do? Oh, yeah. They do auto parts. They do axles and transmissions. Okay, and okay. So like, they just didn't write a letter at all. After, after one year, year, after another, after another, after another, after another, and then bam, nothing. At least nothing I could find. So if there was a letter, Linamar, I'd love to see it. Um, otherwise, I'm going to continue to assume there was no letter that year. That and I just bad. wonder if the pressure that well, you're placing on these guys with this book is getting to them in a way that their attorneys are saying, whoa, we are now like investing between the lines from Laura Rittenhouse. That nasty person has caused us. Look at they're not happy with this because why? If they, you can oh, read, happy. if you can read between the lines and you can sniff out the BS that they're throwing, their lawyers are probably going to come and say, just don't write the letter. Well, okay. What a great question. What or observation? What's a great? First of all, um, I have a new mantra: the greatest CEOs write the greatest letters. You know, let's spin it positively. That's that's what's going. That's on. the way to push it. Yes. Yeah. And and the fact is, uh, a lot of the professional investors, they 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 just don't read the letters and so a lot of CEOs have said why bother you know the the big guys you know who are the fund managers they don't have they, they're not reading them so why should we bother writing them uh, I think that's having more of an impact than than uh, this realization and I think I hope so that's the case because let's face it who what audience is the biggest most important audience of those shareholder letters question to the floor what audience? I would say analysts. No, I mean shareholders. No. Oh, these are all oh, great. There's answers, a guest potential the acquisition. Okay. <laughs> what employees? Yay! Employees. It's my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't tell him beforehand. <laughs> Think about it. Employees are shareholders, right? Right. And so the employees go there every day, and they're going like, "Oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing." You know, I, you know, rumors are going on in in, in difficult times. Um, they go to that letter. They read that letter. They want to know because they don't get a chance to most of them to sit down with the CEO. And that's let's face it. That's why we love reading Warren's letter. I mean, the letters over the years. At the end of that letter, what's the what's the standard of a great letter? At the end of that letter, you feel I just met with that CEO. I mm. looked at them in the eye. I yeah. got a I got a read on what was going on. It's well, that's I, a great I, point. I think we got to continue what I see on here and the greatest CEOs write the greatest shareholder letters and I think if all of us if you guys are out there doing this and you start sending letters in to the board of directors to the CEOs saying hey we depend on you to do this a great CEO is going to communicate with the shareholders a great CEO is going to communicate with the employees and they're going to tell the truth about what's going on and that's what we really need to know we need to know and understand your business better so we can evaluate it every year and know where we are as an owner that's all, that's all we want, right? We want to be able to know if the culture's changing. We want to know if you're changing the moat, if the moat's shrinking. Are you having problems? Are you getting around the problems? How are you solving these problems? We don't want a bunch of smoke blown at us, or in Laura's terms, yeah, I the mean, fog blown at us. The fact that there's a letter us. on its own doesn't, this is what I found so brilliant about your book, the fact that there's a letter on its own doesn't actually mean you're getting any useful information from that CEO or from that company. It has to be worthwhile. And there are so many of them that are just not, that it really puts a spotlight on the ones that are. So I think what you're saying is exactly right, but let's have more of the good ones. 
hundred percent right. Amen. Amen. So let's take another question. Who else? Yeah. If it's kind of hard to come up, you guys, we can repeat the question, but it'd be yeah. great if you can come up. So my name is Adipu Plampu, and I'm from uh, Brookfield, uh, Wisconsin, it's near Milwaukee. And uh, I've been following actually you two for a while. Uh, and I first wanted to say um, thank you to all of you because this is, a, this is actually a, a culture you're creating or you've created, right? So it's a good platform for us. Um, the other comment I wanted to make was that um, in my previous life, I was a doctor. And um, you brought up the point about uh, the quantitative part um, of looking through a business and then um, I guess the human part and um, I think uh, the human psychology part is, is a very important part as a part that we cannot necessarily quantify uh, and I, I, I uh, from my experience 60% um, of doctors get sued right and the main reason they get sued is for not telling the patient the truth for not saying I do not know or we are finding out mm. in communication and I think there's a parallelism to what we do here right um, because reading between the lines is simply looking for uh, genuineness or, or truth right and we all know what that is so that's the comment I wanted to make. Well, it's, uh, thank you. Yeah, it's so funny. I I'll, I want to take a little bit of, I'll challenge you on that last, your last statement. First of all, I love the analogy because a good, you know, a great shareholder letter is a sign of a healthy business. A little religious what I said, but I think this, this notion that people say, well, how can you know the truth? How can you know the truth? And I really believe like inside when in each of us, we know what the truth is. We know what the truth is, but then we lie to ourselves or we lie, you know, or we, we just, you know, we just, it's just, it's uncomfortable to know that. But I think that's a wonderful thing about human beings is that, you know, it's, it's that candid we lie to, to ourselves, outside, is candid to ourselves. We, yeah. hmm. Or we have really good bullshit detectors. Are, do we, do you think? Like know. we know when somebody's lying, we just are. It, not letting it through. We don't want to. Yeah, I think we filter it. We filter it. And do we filter a lot of that because these people are kind of coming from on high? It's you know, scary. they're just these amazingly successful people with all these degrees, and they tell us this stuff, and something is going off inside your head, and you're saying that something's wrong here, and I don't know quite what it is, but they're such an authority. Well, that's it. I mean, it's scary. Like if you're yeah. an employee, you're going like, well, I see what's going on here day to day, but I'm reading this letter. This has nothing to do with my reality here. That's scary, right? Because this person has an, has authority over you, and it all. We haven't. I, I don't believe we've, this word has come up yet in our conversation. If it has, raise your hand. Uh, what about trust? It's all about trust. You yeah. have to have a trustworthy culture, otherwise, it won't work. Doesn't work. I think what's so beautiful about your comment is that you're saying that doctors themselves have a hard time communicating to their patients when they may not be able to do something, right? And I think that it's there's a real corollary here to leaders of companies. They may not have the ability within themselves to announce when something's going wrong, to say when they've screwed up. I mean, it may not be they such a conscious thing. It. Well, it also may not be such a conscious thing of, oh, I've 
you know, messed up the company this year, so I'm just not going to tell everybody. It may be like, I can't admit that I messed up the company this year. Mm. It might be everybody else's fault, or it's the economy, or it's the president, or it's because, like, there's some problem with my kid at home. You know, you blame it on other people, and it's very hard to communicate that out. What do you think about that? Well, I, 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 let me just ask, what Laura's giving me this look like, hmm. Yeah, I want to know what you think Laura. about that. Tell us what you think. I say BS. <laughs> you say BS. I say BS. Right. So I you mean, don't think that that's a I, real I, dynamic I, that exists? All, what I haven't talked about is that what I've developed over the years, and I was recently, I'm, I'm automating this. I was recently meet, meeting with some very high technolo technological NL, NLP, neural language programming people, and I showed them what I've created. They said, oh, my God, you did what the computer is supposed to do or can do. So I've, I've identified, we'll call them codes. They are the clues. So they're codes. Like, you know, it's like birding. You have to know kind of what the earmarks are of a bird to be, so that's a, you know, red-winged hawk or something. Um, and so, to your point, I give extra points for a CEO in a shareholder letter who says, boy, we really made a mistake this year. Mm -hmm. I was wrong. And I have seen that. It's rare, but I do see it. And the the truth is, everybody knows it, right? <laughs> it's not like it's not like it's trying to say there's there's really not an elephant here. <laughs> it's like it's the elephant in the room. One time I, I gave a I gave a talk, and uh, this was, was supposed to facilitate these two compete. Two companies had groups. They're trying to do something together, and they were. And so I gave a short talk, and I show I have a slide which shows an elephant sitting in a boardroom, <laughs> in the board seat, you know, and and I said, you know, well, you know, and then there's these elephants in the room. We all know they're there, but we don't talk about them. And um, anyway, well, I, is so it, it's, it, it opened but, everything up. I mean, but it's an important thing for the CEO to be somebody who's self-aware. Then is what you're saying. Well, self-aware and confident, right? Um, a woman I met recently, she said, oh, I read your book. You made me a lot of money. I said, well, great. Well, how was that? She said, because you gave me confidence. You gave me confidence in my judgments. And so, so when a C, a C this is what's so, so ironic. When, when, a, when a company's going through troubles, you know, they don't want to talk about it. I said, this is your moment to shine. You're going to earn so many credibility Mm. How how do we communicate that to these companies that we're investing in? How do we tell those guys you've got to do it? Because I'm thinking of one company in particular, Chicago Bridge and Iron, where they made a terrible acquisition. They got into all kinds of lawsuits over a nuclear power plant, and the CEO effectively who did that deal, he might as well have taken 1.5 billion dollars in the parking lot and set it on fire. He just completely wiped out the equity of the company in that regard. And to, to this day, never has admitted there was a problem. It's just, and the board didn't take action against him immediately. They let it slide for, what, two or three years or something? And then finally he, quote, retired, right? And then more crap came out on the table. So there's got to be some huge pushback from CEOs. Well, I mean, what do they have to lose? And it's got to be a lot. I'm thinking that they have every incentive to lie to us, and we're not going to get the truth. Well... Here's something interesting. So I've created, uh, uh, I'm, it's, a, it's a great assumption, I'm, and I'm, I think there's many reasons why we would assume that, but 
it's so interesting. So over the years, I've created a hundred company benchmark sur sample survey. Uh, 100 companies, Fortune 500 companies, representative by market cap, industry, um, you know, financial reputation, and so on. Um, and every year that I do these analytics, I get a normal bell curve. So there are certain companies that really stand out, are great, companies that just, oh my goodness, watch out. And then everybody else is kind of in the middle, like, like okay, whatever. And, and, and people will come in and out of those ranges. Um, so, so in fact, I think the, my experience anyway, Phil, is it's, it's a more positive story than that, that there are in fact companies and CEOs out there, and maybe the message to deliver to corporate boards because the CEOs, well, you know, that's who they report to, right? Is that you really want your CEO to be as disclosive as possible. Um, the reason I read shareholder letters, it's where the lawyers typically don't have much say about it. You know, people say, read mm. the 10K mm. now. Well, those are also lawyered over. Yeah. Um, I mean, I still can find things there, but I call, I call the shareholder like, in, you know, the free skate in the Olympics, you know. You do your compulsories, you know, and then you do your free skate. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> Laura, thank you. Uh, that was, would you guys agree that was pretty flipping great? Thank you very, very much for being You're on very here. You're welcome. You're awesome. And, and by the way, this book, Invested, I am going around telling everybody, this is, a, his, this is a game changer. This book is a game changer because there are not, I can't name other books which talk about the emotions of investing in the way that uh, Phil and Danielle do. And I've gone around telling people, this book, may I say it? This book is Eat, Pray, Love Meets the Intelligent Investor. <laughs> Nice. It's the best description. That's the best. <laughs> oh, I think on and that Laura has note. been such a champion of our book and yeah. made sure it's gotten to Mr. Buffett himself, which is incredible. We don't know if he's opened it, but we hope that he will. And yeah. thank you all for being here. Thank you all for being so here. So much today. All right. Time to go play. Thanks, everybody. See you. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.